0: Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we bow before your word today because your word is your will. When we submit to your word, we are submitting to your will. When we live according to your word, we are in your will. When we love your word, we are loving you. When we obey your word, we are obeying you. Jesus, you are the Word made flesh. When we ignore your Word, we are ignoring you. When we rebel against your Word, we are rebelling against you. The relationship we have with your Word is, in fact, our relationship that we have with you. Amen. As Andre, or I forget who read it, I'm sorry, Mark 10, it was Andre. We see the story of the rich young ruler and there's something about the rich young ruler that um, is very interesting when it comes to thanksgiving and we want to delve into that because I think that the Lord is showing us something right here and even though today's message is in regards to thanksgiving, what we're first going to have to do is look at what it's not. We have to see what something is not in order to understand what it is. And so, um, we see that the opposite of thankfulness is not necessarily unthankfulness. Thank- the opposite of thanksgiving is, in fact, covetousness. It is the thing that destroys thanksgiving, it upends it, it turns it around, is covetousness. And so, we have to look at what covetousness is, because it is, in fact, the mortal enemy of thanksgiving. If I'm covetous, I am not able to be grateful, thankful, or give thanks because I'm looking for something I'm not able to give it. So thanksgiving excludes covetousness, while covetousness at the same time excludes thanksgiving. Those things are mutually exclusive. Now I'm gonna say a lot of things here, but I want you to apply them to the life you have. If you preach in principles, people can apply them to every part of their life. This ought to be applied to married couples. This ought to be applied to parents who have children. This ought to be applied to anybody who has a boss. This ought, to be apl- this ought to apply to anybody who's sitting next to a saint in the body of Christ. This is applicable to you, all right? So stop thinking about the person next to you in the way that, yeah, this is what they should do more. This is something I should do more, okay? <laughs> and we teach best what we need most. So I know this message is for me, But thanksgiving excludes covetousness. Covetousness excludes thanksgiving. You cannot have both of those attitudes in the same heart. In our text, we see a rich man, a rich young man, who was also a ruler, run up to Jesus. And he makes this plain. He makes very plain what he's looking for. He's looking for eternal life. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want that. I see it. I heard about it. I want it. Jesus tells him, of course, well, why don't you keep the commands? He goes, but I am. Jesus knew that he was not just wealthy and powerful, but he was also a covetous man. It says explicitly that he went away sad. This is the sign that he was covetous because he had a relationship with his possessions that was very unhealthy. He didn't have wealth, wealth had him. He didn't control it. It obviously controlled him because he wasn't able to obey God. Why was he able to obey God? Because he was answering to possessions and wealth. He answered to money. He didn't answer to the Almighty that was standing right in front of him. He wanted eternal life And he wanted it on top of all of his earthly possessions. He was rich. He was wealthy. He was young. In other words, he had a lot of of hope, great future. And he was powerful even at a young age. But then he wanted something else. He wanted what's beyond this, not just this. He wanted eternal life on top of all that he already had. He wants to add more to what he already had. He wanted to gain something without losing any of what he already had. Can you see that heart just beaming through this man? Okay, I've got this. Wealth. I'm young. I've got hope. I'm powerful. I've got a lot of influence. I want eternal life. I want it all. <laughs> but I don't want to lose any of it in order to gain something else. So the first question we want to answer is, how does Scripture show that thanksgiving is in fact the opposite of covetousness? We can turn it around. How does Scripture show you that the reason you can't be thankful is because you are covetous? In Colossians 2 verse 4, we are told not to allow anyone to beguile us with enticing words. That word, that scripture there, beguiling with with enticing words, is really seductive words. Enticing words are words that say, "Come and get some more of what you've always wanted." You cannot be enticed. You cannot be tempted by something you don't have a desire for. I cannot be tempted. Broccoli does not tempt me. <laughs> But on the other hand, what my flesh really loves to taste, those are the things I can be tempted by. So in Colossians 2.4, it says, Do not or um, do not allow anybody else to beguile you. In other words, speak to you these words that, that appeal to your flesh, your desires, that entice you, they tempt you. They persuade you into the flesh. Don't let anybody do that because those words are calling your flesh, not your spirit, to a higher... They're calling your flesh down into the world instead of your, your spirit towards the Word of God. But then in verse 7 of the same chapter, same thought, he says, Don't, let, don't allow people to beguile you with their enticing words, their seductive words, their persuasive words, their temptations that appeal to the flesh. Rather, in Colossians 2 verse 7... We are told to overflow with thanksgiving. So there you go, very clear. In Colossians, right here, we are told not to be given to words that are covetous. Don't you really want a bite from that apple, fruit? Don't you really want to take what is not yours? Don't you really want to experience what you're not allowed to? Don't you really want to live on the edge? (laughs) There's so much excitement in sin for a moment. Don't you want that? He says, no, instead of listening to those words, overflow with thanksgiving. Overflow with thanksgiving. So we see these two opposites in Colossians 2, verse 4 through 7. It's clearly obvious. The one is covetous. The other one is gratitude. So the truth is a thankful man is not a covetous man. If you see somebody that's really thankful, you just found somebody that, doesn't, that is not covetous. At least they don't give themselves to covetousness. However, if you see a covetous man, trust me, he's never thankful. He might give you sweet words. <laughs> he might blow smoke at you. He's not thankful. He's trying to get more from you. So how can a covetous man be thankful if he doesn't have what he wants? Think of it. I just said a a covetous man cannot be thankful. You go, how is that possible? Well, answer this question. How can this covetous man be thankful if he still doesn't have what he's looking for? He doesn't want what he has. He wants what he doesn't have. That's his problem. Covetousness drives gratitude away. It drives thankfulness away. That's why some some of us men just aren't happy with our lives. Why not? Because we're not thankful for the life we have. We deem it to be too filled with pain and not enough joy and happiness. We're always looking for another. And all the wise go, that's true. Yeah. Pace your judgment. <laughs> I'm amazed lately at seeing the rates of moms walking out on their children than dads. It used to be the other way around. It's turning around. I'm amazed at fathers having to strong arm The mom of their children so that they can get their children to church so that they can get their children to actually participate in something and it's just my it's just my thought you know i think it all stems from how we have flirted uh with feminism in this country because now um it's no longer about building a legacy it's about being happy A covetousness drives away gratitude from the heart. And in the same way, gratefulness drives covetousness away. However, there's more, uh, there's more to simply just deciding, all right, well, there, I'm going to be thankful then. I'm going to be thankful. There's more to it because um, the leopard doesn't just change his spots because he chose to. As a matter of fact, he can't. So the question here is, then how does a covetous heart become thankful? Would you agree with me that one of the biggest problems we have in our society today is ingratitude? Nobody is thankful or grateful for anything because nothing is enough for people anymore. They live in the most prosperous nation, the freest nation in all of human history, unhappy and angry because they don't have more. It's such a A stain on this generation of ours and I'm including myself in this generation it's such a stain it's almost like you know that kid that has everything his parents given him everything and then he's still not happy nothing can make him happy because there's something theologically true about that individual we're going to see what that is. So how does a covetous heart become a thankful heart? Well, since fallen man's default setting is covetousness, how about a kid, two-year-old? They've got a toy they're playing with, and they see their other sibling has a toy. I want that, I want that, I want that. It's just totally in our nature. They cannot be happy with what they have. They have to have everybody's stuff that's around them, Right. It's in our nature because that's in fallen man's nature. So let's look at uh, let's look at a what fallen man is dealing with. Let's look at where his problem came from, then we will look at how God dealt with that fallen man's problem. Because God has to sovereignly do something in us in order to transfer us from a kingdom of covetousness to a kingdom of thanksgiving. And we see this starting in Genesis chapter three verse six. So it says, when the woman saw, That the tree was good for food. What did she do? She saw something was good for food. She's looking at which tree? Not the tree of life that she was given. Not any of the other trees that she was given in the whole entire garden which she was given completely. No, she saw this tree that was not given to her. And she saw that that tree was good for food. In other words, it satisfies the flesh. Oh, that tastes good. Then it says, she saw that it was pleasant to the eye, and my, is it beautiful? Man, it shines. Number three, and she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Ah, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, see those three things? She saw that it was good for food, sustained the body, it was pleasurable to eat, it wasn't broccoli. It was ice cream. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It wasn't your house. It was your neighbor's house. (laughs) Wow, look at that. She also saw that it would make you wise. Mm, Yeah, I'm the wise one. Now, let's look at the very same principles in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It says, Do not love the world. Okay, so here we have just hit a nerve because in the church... We have terminology which we tell our kids, don't be worldly now. Don't be worldly. Stay out of the world. But we don't quite know what that means. When somebody loves the world, what does this mean? If they are worldly, what does it mean? It says, John speaking, he says, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. Verse 16 says, for all that is in the world, and now he lists what these things are, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, many people think that the love of the world is listening to a secular song. Oh, that's worldly. Or to enjoy a good movie, that's worldly. Or to dance at a wedding, that's worldly. Or enjoy celebrations, or have just a ton of fun. It's like that person's so worldly, they're always celebrating stuff and they're just always loving everything around them. That's worldly. Because uh, this is often how you will find religious, pious, holy, Christian sects to be somber and almost semi Amish because don't enjoy anything. That's worldly. Well, that's not what's been spoken of here. The question we have to ask is what is the world and what is worldliness? Well here in 1 John 2 verse 15 and 16 we are told not to love the world and that John gives us a very clear explanation of what he meant by what he said and as he lists these things he defines what worldliness is and you will see that these things that he lists as worldliness corresponds with what Eve experienced when she was tempted by the forbidden fruit. Let me say it again. John listed worldliness in three parts. And it corresponds to the three things that enticed Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All that is in the world, John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In other words, John says the lust of the flesh, just like Eve saw that it was good for food, food that satisfied and and brought pleasure to the flesh. John says the lust of the eyes, Well, Eve saw that it was pleasant to look at. John says, the pride of life. Eve thought it was capable to make her wise. Wiser than everybody else, even God. Or equal to Him. Can you see that Eve's problem was that she loved the world? The world John articulated. That's what she fell into. So what was the original sin, you might ask? The original sin was worldliness. She loved the world. She allowed voices to entice her, beguile her, seduce her, tempt her in those three ways the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. She saw that it was good for food, she saw that it was pleasant to look at, and she thought that it would make her as wise as God. That is worldliness. That is worldliness. So Adam and Eve, in fact, they gave themselves to the original sin, which is wanting something apart from God's standards for having it. Adam and Eve fell into sin because they coveted something. They wanted something God did not authorize for them to have. And Adam and Eve fell from the grace of God because instead of giving thanks for what they did have and fantastic perfect garden they pursued something they did not have before you pursue that which you don't yet have first become thankful for that which you do have and i'll just throw this in there in case somebody catches on but we are told by jesus he that is faithful in that which is least what's he referring to when he says that which is least what is that which is least Thank you. The thing that's the least valuable in your life today is in fact the money in your wallet. That is the least valuable thing you have, no matter how much you do have of it. If Elon Musk doesn't receive gifts much greater than finance, for instance, God's mercy. He's a poor man. But Jesus said, "Unless you are faithful over that which is least, who will give you what's another man, another what, what, what belongs to another?" In other words, why would you inherit the kingdom of God if you cannot be faithful with that which is least now? How are you going to be faithful with so much more? Now I'm not saying you cannot enter the kingdom of God I'm saying you will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that's a huge distinction between the two. We talked about it last week. But why would I inherit the kingdom of God if I'm already unfaithful with the little bit that God has given me? In the same way, in the same way, we have to become grateful over the little we do have before we start desiring more of the things we don't have. In other words, be faithful stewards over your, the internal part of you. Your gratitude, your thankfulness. Be faithful over your desires before God will give you more. Why would I give my son more or my daughter more to be grateful over if they can't be grateful over the lesser things they already have? Do you realize it is it is obviously going to spoil them. They will become rotten if they keep on getting more without being grateful for the bit that they have. So in the same way, you and I, we stand before God, and we go like, why am I not rich yet? (laughs) Well, I think God knows why. To some, He's given a lot more. To others, a lot less. So we see that Adam and Eve fell from the grace of God because instead of giving thanks for what they did have, they pursued something they did not have. I mean, think about this. Adam and Eve were placed in a perfect world. I mean perfect. (laughs) In a perfect garden. I love my garden. And you've seen it. (laughs) That is not the Garden of Eden. But man, do I love that garden. Imagine their garden. Yet it was never sufficient. It was never enough. It was a perfect environment. It wasn't enough for them. No. This is the problem we have, our children have in our homes that we provide for them. With the education we pay for. This is the problem. I'm not talking generally speaking, right? Why are kids not thankful? Yeah, it's a default sitting of the fallen man why am I never why is nothing ever enough for me nothing is ever enough those people they're, they're such a tall water they cannot be pleased they cannot be satisfied nothing's ever enough for them there's a deep spiritual problem there's a deep root that needs to be upended with those people think of it god gave adam and eve everything without pain he gave them everything without hardship what was not to be thankful for however covetous covetousness drove their thanksgiving out instead of giving thanks they become co- became covetous to take something that wasn't for them to take to want something they shouldn't have desired Wanting the one thing God didn't want for them to have. So why did God put that tree in there? Well, I know you've asked that question. I've asked that question. There's been many conversations about it. Why did God put the tree in there? If he loved them, why didn't he take it away? Why did God put one single no in a whole entire garden of yeses? Everything is a yes. This one is a no. And off they went to it. wanting the one thing that was not theirs. Let me just quickly say this. You might be sitting here today and you might be getting angry at Adam. Like, why did you do this to me? Actually, that's not the truth. Adam is your federal head. He was a real man who really lived lived 6,000 years ago. He's not a storybook. He's a real man that God actually created. But God made him your representative, He represents humanity. He is the father of the human race. And that being said, is he doesn't inaccurately represent you. He doesn't misrepresent you and I. What I'm saying is, theologically speaking, Adam did back then, 6,000 years ago, in the garden, exactly what you would have done had you been there. Oh, that Eve! Yeah, you are Eve. Eve. You are guilty with Eve's sin because she accurately represented you. Adam is your federal head. So why did God put this one no instead inside of a garden filled with yeses? Because God was testing them. When they came to that tree, when they came to that test, they went with covetousness instead of thankfulness. Instead of saying, thank you for all that we were given, they looked at that tree and coveted what was not given to them. So our conclusion here is when we live in this way, you and I, here in 2023, 2024, with the kids that we do have in the marriage that we are in, in the country that we live, in the city that we live, in the church that we're in, when we live this way, and we live never being thankful for what we do have, but instead always wishing, longing to have what we see others experience. If we live this way, then we are acting out of the very sin of Adam and Eve, the very sin that conquered them. is still conquering us today. The sin that's rooted in covetousness. Honestly, if we look at the Word of God, and we truthfully look at us with a sober eye to everything that God has done for you and I, outside of anything that we've done for Him. When we look at that and we cannot be grateful, then we still don't understand the gospel. We just don't get it. Because what do I deserve? Hell. What did I get? Grace. Now, God could have given me justice and He would still be right. He could do it and He wouldn't be blamed. He'd be a righteous judge if he gave me pure justice, but instead of giving you pure justice, what did he give you? Mercy. I'll have merciful, I'll be merciful on whom I will be merciful. I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. And if he passes over the rest, he's not wrong because to some he shows mercy. To others, he gives justice and he remains completely perfect. That, and that alone, that doctrine right there alone ought to drive us to our knees and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But instead of being thankful, we're going to like, why don't I have more of this? See them, they have stuff, why can't I? That thing right there will destroy your life. Every moment that is enjoyable, every bit of joy gets sucked out of every moment because I'm covetous. I can't enjoy any part of my marriage. I can't enjoy any part of my family. All the joy in living right here with this beautiful church family is sucked out of my life because I'm covetous. I'm always looking for something else other than being thankful for the thing I have. So, how does God undo in us what Adam did in us? How does God undo this covetous heart? Well, through the born again experience. That's how He does it. Through the born again experience. You see, God produces in us the death of covetousness. When He touches our heart, He circumcises our heart, He takes out that stony part, He puts in a heart of flesh. And what happens when you get a new heart? You get a new desire. So this is how God actually dealt with it. He produces death in us, the death of covetousness wanting, and births in us thankfulness wanting. There's a change in desire. And actually, I wanted to bring this to you because uh, this is not a sermon or message that's encouraging you to be more thankful. This is a sermon at its core encouraging you to test yourself to see if in fact you're in the faith. No truly born again person no truly born again person actually is justified to walk around unthankful all their life. (laughs) It does make sense, does it? It makes no sense. The truly born again person goes, I repent, <laughs> I repent, and you go to the most thankful person you know, the most thankful born-again person you know, you go like, oh, man, you're such a grateful person, oh, I repent, I'm not grateful enough, <laughs> that would be the son of a true born-again person, right? when you are born again there's a change in desire why because it's a change in the heart why because the stony heart's taken out the heart of flesh is given that stony heart is being circumcised what's cut away the very thing that adam had in ease that's cut away which is what the fact that nothing is ever enough i want what i i want what i'm not allowed to have so this is where a very clear line is drawn between watch this buddhism christianity the buddhists view um, of desire, is very different than your and my view of desire. Buddhists say, get rid of wanting by emptying yourself of all desire. Have no desire for anything. They believe that that if you desire, then you are setting yourself up to get hurt. Desire is what causes conflicts. Desire is what causes people to kill each other and go to war and Divorce it like just stop desiring. Empty yourself. You want nothing and you'll be happy. It almost sounds like you'll have nothing and be happy. <laughs> no, but Buddhists say you want nothing and you'll be happy. If you rid yourself of all desire, you'll protect yourself. Well, the Bible, on the other hand, doesn't teach that. God wants you to be thankful instead of covetous. In order to be thankful, guess what? You have to get things you were desiring in order to be thankful for them. Here's a thought experiment. Are you ready? Imagine if God gave Adam an, uh, a perfect life, okay? Here, Adam, here is this perfect life. Adam looks at it and he goes, eh, whatever. Sure. Sure fine then, have it your way, I'll take it, sure. You see, in order to be thankful, you have to get what you want. In order to be thankful, you have, you have got to want something so that you can be thankful when you get it. You have to want it. Like Adam, if God says, here's a perfect life, and he goes, sure, whatever, have it your way. It's, it's like he didn't want it, he didn't desire it and even getting it. Why would it make him thankful? Because he didn't want it to start off with. You're following what I'm saying, right? No. Nobody has ever been thankful for the fulfillment of a desire they never had. <laughs> so so what, the, what is the Buddhist thankful? Let me ask that. What is the Buddhist thankful for? Nothing. Because he doesn't desire anything and therefore has nothing to be thankful for. He's the guy that receives something and I don't desire it. Might as well take it away. The Bible does not teach us to reject desire, you see. uh, Think about it this way. Jesus actually desired things. It says, for the joy set before him He endured the cross. He desired to see that joy. Jesus wanted something and that something he desired would make his joy complete if he got what he was looking for. In other words, he desired something and his joy was complete when that thing showed up. Jesus was tempted by Satan. That's proof that he had a desire. You see, there can be no temptation if there is no desire. A man cannot be tempted by another woman if he doesn't have a desire for woman. You cannot be tempted by broccoli if you have no desire for the stuff, right? But Jesus was tempted only because he did have desires and was tempted by that. You see, righteousness and unrighteousness is defined in biblical terms, not by uh, whether you want. Righteousness and unrighteousness isn't determined by the fact that you have a desire, it's determined by what you want. Is it God's will or your own? It's, desired by, it's determined by how you want it. Do you want it on God's terms or your terms? It's determined, unrighteousness and righteousness is determined on, uh, by when you want it, in your timing or God's timing. So it, it has to do with what you want. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil, well, that's the wrong desire. You should have a desire but not for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You should have a desire for the tree of life. How you want it. Well, I want marriage on my terms. No, it's got to be on God's terms. Marriage is good. You should desire it, but not on your terms. Not how you want it, how God wants it. Or how about sex? (laughs) When you want it. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's wrong. It's not a sin. It's just when do you want it. In marriage or outside of marriage? In other words, what time? Before you got married or now that you are married? You see, it has to do with what you want, how you want it, when you want it. But having a desire is not wrong. Buddhists are wrong. So is this wanting you have in line with God's order or is it in line with disorder? There are only two orders. God's order, disorder; Christ, chaos. Two options. Christ or chaos. Whether it be in government, whether it be in marriage, whether it be in child rearing, whether it be in your finances. Christ or chaos. Choose what you want. Our problem is not that we wanted something. The problem is that God told us that we couldn't have it this way. We couldn't have it at that time. We couldn't have it Through those means, we couldn't have, for those purposes, we couldn't have it with that kind of attitude. So Adam and Eve's problem was not that they wanted something. Their problem was that they wanted things in the wrong way, through the wrong means, for the wrong purpose, with a rebellious attitude, things that were not theirs. These are all the attributes of covetousness. So when you find yourself being disobedient to god's word guess what it's really uh, the the covetousness is really a root therefore covetousness is the root thereof excuse me and we need to start identifying something we need to name something before we can repent for it we have to identify it recognize it in our lives and then say this is the root i was wondering where did all these thorns come from this bush right here. <laughs> Where do all the hurt and the pain and the unhappiness in my life come from? There's the root. There's the root. You're filled with covetousness. You wanted your way, your time, your the, through your means, for your purposes, with your bad attitude. And so I have to listen to this and preach it to myself. Folks, If we grasp what scriptures is teaching us about covetousness, which is what the rich young ruler was guilty of, he didn't want to give up anything, but he just wanted more of everything that sounded good. If we cannot give up covetousness, we couldn't obey God, and he walked away sad, and that's why our lives oftentimes are miserable. We have miserable lives. And we think it's somebody else's fault, especially the person that can't leave me. That person, it's their fault. The person, the people we are oftentimes the absolute worst to are the ones who are most committed to us. The ones we know would have a very hard time walking away from us. We treat them like garbage sometimes. And that's a sin. But that sin is called the sin of covetousness. You see, when the covetous desire is crucified through the gospel, in other words, when God gives us this new heart that becomes grateful for what he's done for us, knowing what we would have had had he not shown us mercy, now that mercy is so valuable. Now, out of the overflow of my understanding of the mercy that I received, I can now be merciful to others. I'm not merciful to you because you deserve my mercy. I'm merciful to you because I didn't deserve the mercy I got. I'm not loving you because you're lovable. I'm loving you because when I was his enemy, I was loved. I'm not generous because you desperately need my five dollars. No, I'm generous because he was so generous. He gave me even his son. While I hated him, shook my fist at him, and I I was his enemy. He gave... So we can, when you look at the gospel, the gospel will unravel every single relational problem you have. <laughs> the gospel answers every single pain, every single problem we have. We have to allow the gospel to have an outworking in our lives. Work out your salvation, work it out. So when the, when the covetous desire is crucified through the gospel, which is why the gospel is ours. In other words, when God gives us a new heart is when He circumcises those things away. Covetousness and greed. This is when He cuts away a certain desire for worldliness. Instead of seeing something to be pleasant to the eye when I'm unsaved with a stony heart, with a new heart I see something else to be pleasant and desirable. I see Christ desirable and the sin that used to be desirable to the stony heart now becomes, makes me sick. Oh, Paul says, what a wretched man I am because he got a new heart. The things he used to love he now hates and the thing he used to pursue and persecute he now gives himself to. Can you see? Those three things, his worldliness, was cut away from him. Certain appetites were cut away from him. And if you are born again, this is true for you. And God replaces this heart that used to be so worldly with a new desire, which is to want God, desire holiness, and pursue after righteousness. This is no more clearer scene than in a new believer's ever-increasing desire for, uh, dim, excuse me, a believer's ever-diminishing ex- desire for worldliness and his ever-increasing desire for righteousness. So finally, let's ask the question: how do I know that God is currently working in my heart? Because oftentimes people go like, wow, you know, the message really um, is heavy on my heart because I'm listening and I'm finding myself guilty. Now, I don't, want to sh- I don't want to ask you to show me your hands. How many of you feel guilty for being covetous? Because just now somebody doesn't raise their hand and then you're guilty of two sins, not just one. So I don't want to multiply your sin, but we're all guilty to a degree we have to become more grateful. In other words, less covetous, right? Right? So how do I know that God is in fact currently working in my heart? How do I know that, okay, I'm on the right track. I just got to keep going forward. Well, in Philippians 2 verse 13, it says very clearly, for it is God who works in you both to will. Somebody goes like, well, God doesn't interfere with your will. Man's will is free. Huh? I don't know what I just looked at. Is man truly free? Let me ask you this. Would he will... Would man will perfectly before God comes to work in his will? No, because it says it is God who actually works in your will. To do what? To do his good pleasure. That's what it is. Yes, God does actually interfere with people's wills. Um, You know, he causes um, the heart to the king is in the hand of God. (laughs) It's like... I mean, the verses don't stop, you know. God works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. I know that God is at work in my heart when I hate the, uh, the lingering covetousness in me. I don't want to covet. I want to be more thankful. I want to be more grateful. And if that is your desire, guess what? You are seeing the fruit of God's hand in your life. When I hate the fact that I've always... Um, uh, when I hate the fact that I always want what is not mine to have, but rather wish to have what only God gave me. You know, God is working in your heart. And Romans chapter 7 is the greatest example of it. It's the greatest display of it. Paul's going on about, you know, all the things I wish I did, I'm not doing. And all the things I wish I didn't do, I keep doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. My desire is to stop the wrong and do what's holy and just and, Paul was on the right track. (laughs) How was that true for Paul? Because of Philippians 2.13. It was God working in him. Because right before the road of Emmaus, his life was the other way around. But at the road of Emmaus, suddenly he had different appetites, different visions, different goals, different priorities. His whole entire life turned around. And this is the sign of a truly born-again person. I know God is at work in my heart when I long to be the person who is filled with gratitude for what God actually has given me, the life he has given me. Oh, just think about how you will love your life if you can just become grateful for the things you do have from the hand of God. And you go like, yeah, well, this problem is not from the hand of God. Oh, is that so? (laughs) Uh, Not so. Do you think the apostle Paul had no problem with that thorn in his flesh? somebody goes yeah but that was that was the evil spirit i know sent by god because satan is god's devil you go well he's not well then just read job was satan able to do whatever he wanted to no he couldn't even start doing what he did to job lest god gave him permission to and then god said only that far no further in other words yeah The devil is free to run only as long as God's leash is on him. My point with this is, sometimes we are only thankful for the things that make us happy. Well, I'm thankful for the discipline that I've received throughout my life. Because at the time, it wasn't pleasant. But thank God, (laughs) thank God for the fruits that it has brought into my life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we will look at every single thing you have placed in our lives, relationships, everything, Lord God, that is from your hand, not just the easy things, but also the hard things. We are thankful. Oh, how easy it is for us to consistently only want the things we don't have and forget to be thankful for the things we do. God, help us. Help us, God. Be grateful before you, because what we in fact deserve is eternal damnation. But what we received was your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your goodness. We received your name. We receive, Father, eternally. We receive eternal life, and ultimately, we receive the kingdom. Oh, God, how undeserving we are if only we would have a clearer picture of how undeserving we are and a clearer picture of all that has been afforded us, we will be driven to our knees and be thankful. And the first who would know this would be the people closest to us. Lord, allow your gospel to work out through our lives and let it become evident as our lives become brighter and brighter in this ever-darkening world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word? Amen.